Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our April 2016 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Sleep impairment is an understudied, inadequately treated, and clinically important component of chronic military-related post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. To learn more about this, the authors of this article analyzed data to characterize the nature of sleep disturbance in these patients and to describe the impact of risperidone on their impaired sleep. Their research was supported by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and by Ortho McNeil Janssen Scientific Affairs. Results showed that sleep impairments were common and clinically important in veterans with chronic military-related PTSD, despite their ongoing psychosocial treatment and pharmacotherapy prior to entering the study. 88% of the veterans experienced significantly impaired sleep, particularly sleep disturbance, increased sleep latency, and decreased sleep quality. Impaired sleep was associated with more severe PTSD symptoms and poor quality of life. Respiridone produced small reductions in PTSD symptom severity and improvements in quality of life. However, the beneficial effect of respiridone did not become significant until the 24-week time point. Overall, this study highlights that sleep impairments are a common and important feature of chronic military-related PTSD and that risperidone appears to produce limited benefit for sleep disturbances in this patient group. The authors conclude that new and more effective treatments are needed for sleep disturbances associated with PTSD. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is a common and impairing disorder affecting about 5% of school-aged children. While until recently it was believed that ADHD remits in adolescence, it is now well known that the disorder can persist into adulthood in a substantial portion of cases. While the characteristics of the disorder have been well studied in men, ADHD in women has been quite neglected. The authors of this article examined differences in ADHD between men and women in a large study sponsored by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism and the National Epidemiologic Study on Alcohol and Related Conditions. In its second wave, this nationally representative survey assessed 35,000 U.S. adults. The authors found that the prevalence of ADHD defined with rigorous criteria was similar between men and women, about 1%. Compared with women, men tended to present with more hyperactivity and associated disorders characterized by disruptive behavior. In contrast, women had more depression and anxiety, reflecting the prevalence of these disorders in men and women in the general population. Men and women with ADHD had similar risky behaviors. These results are relevant for clinicians when screening for ADHD in adults. They suggest that focusing on inattention and impulsivity 
rather than on overtly disruptive behaviors and focusing on comorbid internalizing behaviors may help increase the detection of ADHD in women. This study indicates that women with ADHD should receive as much attention as their male counterparts. Investigators in Australia have proposed a new imaging-based biomarker that they believe could assist clinicians in identifying patients who are unlikely to benefit from antidepressants. The data are from a large treatment prediction trial called iSpotD, which was sponsored by the Brain Resource Company. The investigators used diffusion tensor imaging to measure the integrity of two white matter tracts known to be heavily involved in the development and maintenance of depression, the stria terminalis and the cingulate bundle. By creating a ratio of these two tracts, they were able to identify approximately 29% of subjects who did not remit to three common antidepressants at an accuracy of 86%. These three antidepressants were escitalopram, sertraline, or venlafaxine extended release. The authors note that there are currently no useful clinical measures to guide treatment decisions in depression. Clinicians who prescribe antidepressants do so knowing that the chance of achieving remission is less than 50%. Therefore, the ability to identify patients for whom these drugs are unlikely to be effective may be helpful in guiding treatment pathways toward more effective options. In clinical practice, patients repeatedly ask how long they should continue to take antipsychotic medication after fully recovering from their initial psychotic episode. The lack of insight into prophylactic effects and concerns over long-term harm are key factors that cause patients to discontinue treatment once their acute symptoms subside. No clear or approved by consensus answer exists for this question. In this study, Spanish researchers, with funding support from the Spanish government, investigated the risk of relapse at three years among 46 functionally recovered first-episode non-affective psychosis individuals who opted to discontinue medication. They also studied 22 individuals who chose to stay on the prescribed antipsychotic medication. Results indicated that the rate of relapse at three years in the group of patients who stopped medication was particularly high at almost 70% and that the majority of relapses occurred during the first 12 months after discontinuation. Clinical and functional status were impacted with relapsed individuals displaying a greater severity of symptoms and lower functionality after three years compared to non-relapsed patients. The resumption of antipsychotic medication after the relapse was associated with clinical stability and lack of further relapses. The authors believe clinicians should accurately inform patients and their relatives that even if patients have been symptom-free and functionally recovered on antipsychotic treatment, the risk of relapse is likely to be high if antipsychotics are discontinued. Despite this counsel, numerous individuals may still be disposed to discontinue medication. Therefore, planned medication withdrawal strategies with systematic follow-up should be established to prevent unrestrained treatment 
disengagement. How addictive are specific substances? And what factors influence whether someone is likely to develop an addiction? Previous studies that have tried to answer these questions have had important limitations. First, studies have often focused on those who have ever used a certain substance and then identified how many of them eventually develop dependence. This method underestimates the addictiveness of substances that may be used experimentally or only once or twice. Further, examining patterns of substance use that might have occurred many years ago is an imprecise way to identify the factors that might influence progression to addiction. A recent study that sought to overcome these limitations employed data from the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. Using dsm 4 criteria to define dependence, the researchers found that the risk of dependence among weekly substance users was about 16% for alcohol and 67% for nicotine. Cannabis dependence was also quite common, occurring in 25% of weekly users. Men were generally more likely than women to be dependent on alcohol, cannabis, and cocaine, although women were more likely than men to be dependent on nicotine. Among regular drinkers, who were initially not addicted, depressive disorders predicted the development of alcohol dependence. The authors conclude that these findings highlight the importance of frequency of use in determining the addictiveness of substances. About half of women with schizophrenia become mothers. To design appropriate services for these women during pregnancy and after childbirth, it is important to understand the nature of the need for acute psychiatric care, including hospitalization and emergency department use. In a population-based study funded by the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, researchers identified women with schizophrenia who gave birth in Ontario, Canada, from 2003 to 2011. About 12% of women were hospitalized during pregnancy and closer to 20% were hospitalized postpartum. Of women who were hospitalized, approximately one-third were hospitalized multiple times. About 10% of women during pregnancy and 15% postpartum had psychiatric emergency department visits that did not result in hospitalization. Of women with at least one emergency department visit, approximately half had multiple emergency department visits. However, with the exception of the first nine days postpartum, hospitalization and emergency department visit rates during pregnancy and postpartum were lower than in the year prior to pregnancy. Overall, the study found a reduction in acute psychiatric care service use for women in the perinatal period. The authors note that determining how to identify those at greatest risk for illness exacerbation will be an important next step for optimizing stability in women with schizophrenia who choose to become mothers. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. 
The number of U.S. veterans applying to receive disability benefits for military service-related post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, has risen dramatically over the past decade. This increase has raised concerns that financial incentives lie at the heart of many of these disability claims. Although it may never be possible to determine the exact number of false PTSD disability claims, a study funded by the U.S. Department of Defense examined the extent to which veterans' PTSD disability status matched their PTSD diagnostic status as determined by a gold standard diagnostic interview. The study sample consisted of 834 veterans who were enrolled between 2009 and 2012 in the Veterans After Discharge Longitudinal Registry. Called Project Valor, it is an observational registry of veterans with and without PTSD who are enrolled in the VA healthcare system. Researchers found that PTSD disability and diagnostic status matched for more than 70% of the veterans. Among those whose PTSD diagnostic status differed from their PTSD disability status, there were substantial numbers who were either receiving PTSD-related disability benefits but did not meet criteria for PTSD or who met the criteria but were not receiving the corresponding disability benefits. The authors state that additional research should examine the reasons for these discrepancies as well as ways to eliminate them. Valproic acid is an effective anti-epileptic and mood stabilizer. Despite being a known teratogen with effective, less harmful alternatives, it continues to be used for reproductive-aged women with chronic mental illness. All relevant professional organizations share concern about its use in this population and accordingly make best practice recommendations to either limit its use or implement certain precautions in these patients. In this month's See Me offering, Researchers performed a retrospective chart review at a tertiary medical and training center over a 19-month period. Their study identified 190 female patients of reproductive age who were prescribed valproic acid for a psychiatric diagnosis. The study was designed to determine whether or not providers adhered to recommendations about documenting discussions of teratogenicity contraceptive use, and folic acid. It also aimed to assess to what extent patient demographics and treatment settings or diagnosis influenced these outcomes. Most patients in the study carried a diagnosis of other depression or bipolar disorder. A third of patients had contact with inpatient psychiatry services during the study window. The authors found very low levels of adherence to current state-of-the-art practice recommendations for valproic acid administration. Only 25 of 190 women had adequate documentation of risk-benefit discussion regarding teratogenic risk. Only 15 were prescribed folate, and less than a third had documented contraceptive use. Also, women who had contact with inpatient psychiatric care were less likely to be using contraception. The authors conclude that in clinical practice, currently published expert guidelines on this topic are either unknown or not followed. 
They propose that new approaches are needed to educate providers and to ensure patient safety in this vulnerable population. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The authors of the present study report a high false positive rate of a biomarker test marketed to aid in the diagnosis of schizophrenia. The test employed a 51 analyte immunoassay panel and was marketed as having a sensitivity of 83% and a specificity of 83% in distinguishing individuals with recent onset schizophrenia versus healthy controls. The original intent of the current study was to determine whether the sensitivity remained the same in individuals with chronic schizophrenia. However, the initial results indicated a low specificity in older healthy controls. The researchers, therefore, shifted the focus to the control population, which was expanded to include young controls matching the age range used in the development of the test. It also included older healthy controls matching the age of the individuals with chronic schizophrenia. On the basis of this test, the conditional probability of having schizophrenia ranged from 35% to 98% in the subjects diagnosed with chronic schizophrenia. For healthy controls, this probability ranged from less than 12% to 99%. The sensitivity of this 51-plex biomarker was 89% in this study, while the specificity was 34%. The specificity was not affected by the age of the healthy controls. The sensitivity of this test was therefore not affected by the chronicity of illness or by years of treatment. The surprising finding was that the test was not able to discriminate between healthy control subjects and subjects with chronic schizophrenia. The authors conclude that the utility of such tests needs to be confirmed in a sample independent of the one used to develop it, and one that more closely matches the clinical population in which the test will be used. There is good evidence that interpersonal psychotherapy, or IPT, is an effective treatment for major depression. The authors of this article, supported with funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, have adapted IPT to the treatment of antepartum depression. In a recently reported clinical trial, they surprisingly found no significant difference between IPT for antepartum depression, or IPTP, and a parenting education program which is called PEP for the treatment of mild to moderate prenatal depression. Because severity of depression has been found to influence treatment response, however, the authors reassessed IPTP outcomes in the current study, limiting analyses to women with moderate depressive symptoms. In this reanalysis, 110 study participants met DSM-4 criteria for major depressive disorder. 75 scored 16 or greater on the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, or HDRS-17, from 2005 through 2011 and were classified as moderately depressed. The clinical ratings used during the 12-week treatment trial included the HDRS-17, the 
Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, or EPDS, and the Clinical Global Impressions Improvement and Severity Scales, or CGI. The IPTP group had significantly lower HDRS-17 and EPDS depression ratings than the PEP group at week 8. These ratings remained low but lost significance at week 12 due to a large dropout rate and smaller sample size. There was significant illness improvement and less illness severity for the IPTP group as measured by CGI ratings at weeks 8 and 12, while ratings for the PEP group remained relatively unchanged across the study. The authors conclude that among women with moderate levels of depression severity, IPTP is markedly more effective than PEP. This finding supports the current guidelines from the American Psychiatric Association and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which recommend the use of psychotherapy for mild to moderate depression in pregnancy. Depression is a common symptom after traumatic brain injury, or TBI. The authors of this article studied whether pre-existing hyperlipidemia was a potential risk factor for depression in patients with TBI. They also considered whether the effect of statin medications reduced the risk of new-onset depression. Their research received funding support from the Chimei Medical Center of Taiwan. An age and sex-matched cohort study of TBI patients with and without pre-existing hyperlipidemia, as well as those who had been treated with statin medications, was conducted using the Taiwan Longitudinal Health Insurance Database. The incidence rate of depression in TBI patients with pre-existing hyperlipidemia was 140 per 10,000 person years. Results showed that TBI patients with pre-existing hyperlipidemia had a two times greater risk of having depression than those without the pre-existing condition. And if they had not been treated with statins, the risk was even higher, almost two times higher for those patients with pre-existing condition to develop new-onset depression. The authors conclude that pre-existing hyperlipidemia may be an important predictor of new-onset depression in patients with traumatic brain injury. This article is freely available online. Please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Bipolar disorder affects 1 in 100 people and is characterized by episodes of mania and depression. While standard medicines are effective in treating manic episodes, a gap often exists with depressive episodes between the decline in symptoms and full recovery. Researchers have been working towards filling this gap with add-on therapies, one of which is N-acetylcysteine, or NAC. Several studies have used NAC as an additional treatment for people experiencing bipolar depression. The current article describes a systematic review and meta-analysis in which all existing studies of NAC and bipolar depression were pulled together to determine whether an overall benefit could be found in the use of NAC for bipolar depression. In order to be proven as a beneficial treatment, 
A medication must be trialed in a variety of ways in a variety of studies. For example, one study may show an effect, but that effect may not be replicated by other studies. The approach taken here used scientific rigor to explore each study for its validity. The studies were then pooled into one larger study to answer the question, is NAC beneficial for bipolar depression? Overall, the authors found that NAC was beneficial as an add-on therapy for bipolar depression. This information is useful as an aid for clinicians to practice evidence-based medicine and to help people with bipolar disorder understand what treatments are scientifically effective. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, and postpartum depression are presumed to be related because both are disorders of hormone sensitivity. However, evidence to support this assumption is lacking. In a study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, 215 women who attended the NIMH Mood Disorders Clinic sought treatment for confirmed PMDD. A clinician-administered rating scale established postpartum major or minor depression in 137 of the women who had delivered at least one child. Only 16 of those women reported a history of postpartum depression. About half of the women reporting PMDD had a history of either major or minor depression. With regard to other DSM psychiatric disorders, approximately 15% of women with PMDD had a history of Axis I anxiety disorder, while 18% met criteria for past alcohol or drug abuse. 2% met criteria for either bulimia or anorexia nervosa. These findings demonstrate that premenstrual dysphoric disorder and postpartum depression do not frequently co-occur, which counters several reports in the literature. These results do not suggest that PMDD and postpartum depression share similar pathophysiology beyond both being mood disorders triggered by ovarian steroids. The authors conclude that the high comorbidity of past major depressive episodes could contribute to the increased risk for both future major depressive episodes and for postpartum depression in some women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Literature has shown that psychosocial impairment in bipolar disorder can persist for years and may lead to incomplete recovery in the areas of functioning such as employment, income, education, and marital status. Despite the wide use of questionnaires to measure work functioning, the real-world milestone of employment is of great interest. The current study aimed to investigate change in employment status over time relative to the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. The primary outcome measure was the time from bipolar incidence to change in employment status from income earner to non-income earner. Income earners are defined here as those who work for employers and receive compensation in the form of wages or salaries that constitute a fixed value of income. Non-income earners are those who have variable income. 
A cohort of 502 patients with bipolar disorder identified using claims data from the National Health Insurance of Taiwan between 1998 and 2001 was compared to over 2,000 non-mentally ill controls for up to 10 years after bipolar diagnosis. Results showed that bipolar patients had poor employment outcomes than controls with greater risks of occupational deterioration before and after the bipolar diagnosis. Importantly, at one year before the incident medical claim, a surprisingly low 29% of bipolar patients were income earners compared to 55% of controls. At one year after the index date, the probability of becoming a non-income earner rose to 47% in bipolar patients compared to 22% for controls. These results highlight the difficulties in occupational functioning seen early in the course of bipolar illness. The authors recommend that employment status be incorporated as a measure of functioning and effectiveness in clinical practice and research. They further recommend that early detection policies be implemented with special concern for vocational support and rehabilitation. This research was supported by several Taiwanese government grants. There are several reasons why metformin treatment may be considered for women in neuropsychiatric practice. It is therefore important to know the benefits and risks associated with the use of metformin during pregnancy. In the latest installment of his Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the existing data in order to weigh the risks. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight two educational activities. In our first activity, supported by an educational grant from Merck, Tune in to this CME webcast to watch two patient cases that illustrate different sleep difficulties, middle-of-the-night awakenings, and trouble falling asleep. Then listen as our expert faculty discusses these cases and recommends evaluation tools and treatment strategies that will help you manage patients with sleep problems in your everyday clinical practice. Your patient's limited or non-response to antidepressant treatment may be hiding a deeper problem. In our second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Takeda, U.S. Region, and Lundbeck, you can examine the case of Mr. K to increase your knowledge of the significant issues that non-adherence may cause for patients diagnosed with major depressive disorder. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.